You're listening to a podcast from the 5th Annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference. The conference took place at Maynooth University on the 28th and 29th of August, 2015. The conference was generously supported by Marsh's Library, the Department of History at Maynooth University, Graduate Studies Office at Maynooth University, UCD Research, UCD School of History, and the Irish Research Council through a new Foundations Award. Podcasting was by Real Smart Media. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Dr. David Heffernan from University College Cork. His paper was entitled Planting Elizabethan Ulster, the Earl of Essex Enterprise of Ulster, 1573-1575. So in the early 1570s, the Elizabethan regime embarked on efforts to plant the northeast of Ireland with colonies of English settlers. The parts of this region had largely been under English control in the late medieval period. The region encompassing Antrim and Down was, by the mid-16th century, effectively controlled by Irish lords such as the Clan de Boyle O'Neills, with only small enclaves of English power, notably at Carrickfergus and the Badgen on the state at Newry. Most worryingly, the northern extremity of Antrim, encompassing the regions known as the Glens and the Root, had been settled by Scots from the Western Isles, chiefly the Macdonalds. It was ostensibly in an effort to expel the Scots and reclaim these regions that colonisation efforts of the early 1570s were primarily undertaken. However, to reduce costs, these were to be semi-private plantations, meaning that while the Crown invested and subsidised these initiatives, the lands would be granted to private individuals who would oversee the formation of the colonies. The grants have received considerable attention in the historiography of the period, particularly that of the English Secretary of State, Thomas Smith. However, the largest and most disastrous of these initiatives, that of the first Earl of Essex, Walter Deverew, to settle Clandeboya between 1573 and 1575 has never been the subject of a systematic study. Generally, just the bare facts are known. In the summer of 1573, Essex petitioned for a grant of land in the northeast. He was subsequently granted a moiety or half the region from the Queen, who retained the second half herself. Additionally, Essex was granted a very large loan of £10,000 from the Queen to finance the endeavour, which was guaranteed by a mortgage of a large proportion of his lands in England. Essex arrived in Ireland in the autumn of 1573. He was beset by difficulties. He fought bitterly with the Viceroy of Ireland, William Fitzwilliam, engaged in indiscriminate acts of atrocity at Belfast in November 1574 and on Rattlin Island in the summer of 1575. And then, having failed utterly in his task, he returned to England to negotiate his way out of penury. Finally, he returned to Ireland in 1576 to take up the position of Earl Marshal of Ireland, where he died under somewhat suspicious circumstances in September 1576. This is the standard narrative, but it's not very detailed. My narrative here won't be as detailed as it ideally should be, either owing to exigencies of space. Um, I'll add some detail on the actual course of the enterprise first, and then leading from this I want to look at the actual military engagement that was undertaken, and how the enterprise points up a lot of the reasons for the failure of Elizabethan policy in Ireland. Okay, so the beginnings of the enterprise and the negotiations which surrounded it have been touched on, but just to say something extra on the loan of £10,000. This was given in consideration that Essex would repay the principal after 12 months, or a fine of £1,000 would accrue. The same would happen after 24 months, and if Essex was still in default after three years, the lands held in mortgage would fall into the Crown's possession. The rationale of the loan was that Essex would have to encounter immediate success in Ireland 
If he didn't, he would fail to make the repayments. Worse still, if he needed more money, which he did, and lots of it, he would essentially be digging both himself and the Crown into a financial pit. The real issue here was that taking the mortgage lands from Essex would mean destroying the patrimony of one of England's oldest noble families, and Elizabeth, for all her flaws, was against doing this. So the expedition left from Liverpool in mid-August 1573. Storms scattered the fleet, so they arrived in a chaotic fashion at Carrickfergus throughout September. Through the constable of Carrickfergus Castle, William Pearce, Essex scored an immediate coup when he succeeded in bringing the most powerful lord of the region, Brian MacPhail O'Neill of the clan de Boy O'Neills, to submission within a fortnight of his arrival. However, this situation only lasted several days before Brian fled from Carrickfergus with his followers and entered rebellion. The rebellion, such as it was, consisted of three brief skirmishes in the region between Carrickfergus and Belfast in October 1573, of which Essex sent some wildly exaggerated accounts to London. So kind of, we killed a hundred of them, we lost a horse, that sort of thing. (laughs) Following these relatively inconsequential military exchanges, plague struck Carrickfergus. It is unclear if this was an actual incidence of plague or if it was simply the country sickness or ague. In any event, the the disease left Essex's forces crippled with hundreds ill, while many of the adventurers, who were essentially mercenary colonists who had agreed to travel to Ireland with with Essex, fled back to England. By the late winter, it was reported that the Earl could bring little more than 200 men into the field. Mired in this situation, Essex decided to travel south in early January to confer with Fitzwilliam and Drogheda. He did not return to actively campaign in Ulster for four months. The entire spring was spent in the north of the Pale, waiting on letters from England to resolve on whether the enterprise should continue or not. Negotiations for a peace with Tarlock Lennox O'Neill, the Lord of Tyrone, were also undertaken. However, to trace the correspondence on these is to see one of the major problems of Tudor government in Ireland. Whenever Essex sent a letter to England, by the time he received a response, the situation on the ground had already changed. For instance, Essex was advised to prosecute Tarlock with all force in late March 1574. But by the time he received these instructions, he had already signed articles of truce with Tarlock, and O'Neill's agent was on his way to the court. In April 1574, Essex had reconstituted his forces to a degree sufficient for him to return to Ulster. He did so in late April with the intention of journeying against Brian MacPhailham. This he did, however, after one brief skirmish, Brian yet again surrendered to Essex, pleading the early modern conceit of evil councillors that had misled him into rebellion. So yet again, Essex and the Queen were at an, at an enormous financial outlay for an, ar- <coughs> for an army that was, put, that was not put to any real purpose. Essex had now intended to travel north against the Scots, but then changed his mind and determined to return to England to resolve the matter of his loan and the mortgage lands. However, while in Dublin in June, the Irish Council convinced him to act as a peace broker between Fitzwilliam and the Earl of Desmond, who had fled from Dublin Castle the previous year and was, in effect, in rebellion. This Essex did, meeting Desmond outside Waterford on 30th of June. He provided Desmond with protection and then travelled with him to Dublin, where negotiations immediately broke down. Essex then offered Desmond safe passage back to Munster before returning to the Pale, to begin preparations for a winter campaign against Tarlock Lennox, the Queen having refused to make a decision over the positions Tarlock had offered as grounds for peace during the summer. 
In August, Essex sent a detachment north to recover a small fort on the River Ban, which had been occupied by Torlock's allies in July. In September, he mounted his second campaign into Ulster of 1574. This also resulted in zero engagements. However, Essex did employ scorched earth throughout Tyrone to create famine conditions there the following spring. Having again returned to the Pale, Essex now composed a policy paper entitled An Opinion for the Government and Reformation of Ulster, which offered a comprehensive plan for reducing the northern province. This would be undertaken through a comprehensive building programme. The strategy of using nucleated garrisons to conquer a region was not novel and had been employed in Ireland since the 12th century. Moreover, it was central to many schemes for military conquest and colonisation, articulated under the Tudors from Patrick Finglas's Breviot, uh, written during the reign of Henry VIII onwards. Essex now proposed to use such a strategy to conquer Ulster. Three major towns would be established at the Blackwater, at Coleraine on the Ban and at Loch Foyle. These would be bolstered by three small settlements in Clandaboy itself, at Belfast, Masserine and at some northern extremity near Rattlin Island. An army of 1,300 men would be needed for two years to oversee this programme and would, in theory, lead to the overthrow of Tarlock Lennock and the expulsion of the Scots. Essex's plat, as it became referred to in official correspondence, would, he projected, cost the enormous sum of £65,000, £13,000 for the building programme and £52,000 for the maintenance of the 1,300 men for two years. The plat would be deliberated upon for the next six months and dominated the correspondence relating to the enterprise during that time. Throughout the six months that it was being deliberated upon, no military engagement was undertaken in Ulster except for one brief campaign in November 1574. This resulted in the infamous massacre at Belfast. The purpose of this campaign was to journey against the Scots of Sorley Boy MacDonald in the Glens and the Root. However, on his journey north, Essex apparently received reports that Brian MacPhailham, who was to travel with him against the Scots, was acting in a duplicitous fashion and was still secretly aligned with Tarlock Lennock and Sorley Boy. Reports of the massacre are very few. It most likely occurred around the 10th of November. The annals of the Four Masters depicted an atrocity in which Essex contravened the strictures of hospitality by attempting to arrest Brian and his family at a feast thrown in Essex's honour at Belfast Castle, during the course of which many bystanders, bystanders and innocents were murdered. Essex himself claimed to have simply tried to arrest Brian and that the deaths which followed were owing to the armed resistance on the part of Brian's followers. As to how many were murdered, Essex provides the only enumeration. His first report to Fitzwilliam gave the figure at 125, but this was later revised upwards to 200 in his report to the Privy Council. Following the massacre, Essex took Brian south to Dublin, where he was apparently tried for treason and quickly executed. Essex's actions throughout the winter of 1574 to 1575 are quite unclear. Indeed, he seems to have been doing little other than maintaining an extravagant household in the Pale, on which I'll say more presently. Deliberations on his plat proceeded at a snail's pace, but it was finally resolved in mid-March, almost six months after the first composition of the document, to accept Essex's proposals. However, there was then a further delay, as the Queen's letter sent jointly to Essex and Fitzwilliam was so highly qualified that Essex actually believed the plat had been rejected 
and Tosti was to be recalled in disgrace. Showing the same impetuousness and lack of judgment which would characterise his son's response to signs of royal disfavour, he wrote angrily to England for a plot of land in Ulster from which he would continue his reforming mission himself. He must have been surprised when the acceptance of his plot was made clearer a few weeks later by the Queen and Privy Council. Fitzwilliam, however, had known all along that the plot was to be implemented, having received a very simple letter to that effect from the Privy Council weeks beforehand. I suspect he never showed this letter to Essex, not least because the Queen had ordered them to reduce the military establishment throughout Ireland to 2,000 men. Thus, for Essex to have the 1,300 men required under the terms of the plot, Fitzwilliam would have to hold the rest of the country with just 700 men. This led to the utter deterioration of Essex and Fitzwilliam's relationship. The degree to which Essex and Fitzwilliam quarrelled throughout the Earl's time in Ireland has generally been overstated in the historiography. However, April 1575 did see a huge rupture in a relationship which up to that point had been characterised by considerable collegiality. In any event, this feud was short-lived as the Queen expressly ordered them to reconcile, which they begrudgingly did. However, Essex's plot was also to prove short-lived. Having finally agreed to accept his proposals, the Queen then decided for some unspecified reason to abandon the effort in May. Essex should disengage from Ulster after coming to such arrangements there as would save both his and the Queen's honour. The international situation may, may have been responsible for this sudden change of mind, in particular a dispute with the port of Flushing in the Low Countries in the spring of 1575 had escalated and a trade war between England and the United Provinces loomed in May 1575. Thus, Essex's costly plot could no longer be countenanced. There now followed a bizarre series of events. Essex had travelled north to begin his building programme at the start of May. However, when he received the Queen's letters, he continued what he was doing anyway. Indeed, indeed his agent, Edward Waterhouse, at the time had to write to England to explain away what he termed some contrariety in Essex's actions. Even more bizarrely, this sudden burst of energy actually bore results. In late June, Essex made to invade Tyrone and Turlock Lennox agreed to negotiate a peace in which he made some concessions with regard to his era or sub-kings and his territorial claims south of the Blackwater. Having concluded this peace, Essex advanced into Clan de Boy, where he received the submission of a number of those contending to succeed Brian MacPhailham. He then went north. Thus, on 6 July 1575, two years after coming to Ireland, Essex finally led a campaign against the Scots in the Glen, in the Glen and the Root, um, the very reason why he'd come to Ireland two years later. A significant engagement occurred near the Ban in mid-July, Essex's report of which differs from all his others in the detail given and the manner in which he describes his own positioning within his ranks during the engagement. I strongly suspect this was the only time Essex was anywhere near the front lines during the two years that he spent in Ireland. The engagement resulted in a notable military victory, after which Essex returned to the Pale. However, on his departure, he left John Norris at Carrickfergus with orders to proceed by sea to Rattlin Island and capture the island from Sorley Boy's Scots. This Norris duly did in late July, committing the second notorious atrocity of the enterprise by massacring the 200 inhabitants of Rattlin Castle after it had surrendered to him. 
Thus, Essex's enterprise ended with some military engagements and another massacre. It is curious that it should have done so, for the enterprise was marked throughout by inaction. So if we examine the whole of the two years, uh, there is a striking lack of active campaigning. So this is a summary of it. With three very brief skirmishes that were recorded in October 1573. There was then a campaign undertaken in April 1574, which ended after Brian MacPhailham made another hollow surrender. A small fort on the Ban was seized by John Norris in August 1574. A journey was made through Tyrone in 1574, which produced zero military engagements, but did see the employment of scorched earth tactics. Another military campaign was undertaken in November 1574 against the Scots, but was again abandoned after the massacre at Belfast. The summer of 1575 was seen actually saw some concerted military action. This could be dismissed as the nature of Irish warfare, whereby Irish lords sought to evade direct battle with Crown forces. But there are protracted periods where Essex was simply inactive. What was he doing? An answer may be provided by his household and personal accounts, of which there are two extended volumes extant for the period of the enterprise. So, as you can see here, this particular volume from SP65 goes up to about 140 folios that are very detailed. These point to an extravagantly maintained household, particularly for a lord campaigning in Ulster. The list of spices involved is truly staggering, as is the range of game birds. To take but one example, I don't know how abundant Swan was in Tudor Ireland, but Essex did his best to limit the stocks available. <laughs> from these accounts, overall, one surmises that the true beneficiaries of Essex's enterprise were actually the merchant community of Dublin who were paid enormous sums to keep the, the Earl's household stocked. Given all of this, it is pertinent to note that after his first departure south in, in January 1574, Essex would keep his base in the north of the Pale thereafter, eschewing the less pleasant climes of northeast Ulster. Indeed, at the, end, at the end of his enterprise, there is evidence that one of the reasons for recalling Essex was owing to reports at court that the Earl far from spending his time soldiering in Ireland, was more concerned with maintaining his household. The Earl of Leicester made this clear in a letter to Essex's servant, Thomas Ashton, written in May 1575. So here he wrote that Essex was, to quote, not so well taught of for sufficiency as heretofore. Besides, it is greatly doubted that he is an over-forward man to do any great adventure by his, by his own person, adding... If your friend will be a conqueror, he might determine to become such a man as much, must show himself of such valour in his own person as must bring fear and terror to his enemies, which is not heard of yet. He must not lie still in places of ease and rest and fall to compositions before he be found a right captain by some deed. Such is the nature of our English gallant, as by his good will he will neither wet his feet nor want his fare. On a broader level, the failure of Essex's enterprise points out many of the reasons for the failure of Tudor policy. At the heart of this lay the actions of the Queen herself. In 1574, she left Essex for months without an answer to Turlock Lennox's petitions for a peace. Eventually, negotiations simply petered out and a war footing was resumed. More strikingly still, it took six months for her to make a decision on Essex's plot. When she did signify her acceptance, this was done in such a confusing manner 
as the lead Essex to believe it had actually been rejected and also led to a complete breakdown in relations between Essex and Fitzwilliam. Finally, having accepted the plat, she suddenly changed her mind a few weeks later and ordered Essex to bring the enterprise to an end. Other issues were more pedestrian. The geographical remove of Ireland meant that the Queen and her ministers were often deliberating on things which were no longer valid, the situation having changed on the ground in Ireland. Equally, the cost of the government of Ireland was a factor. Even when a course was resolved upon, the problem of financing it was significant. Indeed, during the the deliberations on the plat, Barley noted that a parliamentary subsidy in England might be required to implement it. So, to conclude... The fallout from Essex's enterprise was significant. There have been various estimates of the cost of the initiative. I would place the overall figure at roughly £90,000. To put this in context, the average cost of the Government of Ireland for a whole year in the late 1560s was roughly about £25,000. The Queen ended up bearing nearly all of the costs of this, as Essex never repaid the initial loan to the Queen, and in any event, the spiralling cost meant that it was only a small proportion of the overall cost. This enormous sum of wasted money ensured that supposedly semi-private and cheap colonisation was abandoned as a means of conquering the North East. Additionally, efforts to incorporate Ulster into the Tudor state were abandoned for the better part of a decade, until John Parrott attempted to intervene there again in the mid-1580s. Most significantly, the manner in which the plantation was organised in Ireland, in which plantation was organised in Ireland, was fundamentally altered by the lessons of Essex's enterprise. When the Crown undertook to plant much of Munster in the aftermath of the Desmond Rebellion, the initiative would be tightly controlled by the state and organised along much more tightly regimented lines. This pattern would be followed into the 17th century. Thus, Essex's enterprise, while a total failure, did have long-reaching repercussions for the history of early modern Ireland. Uh, Thank you.